0: From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. Maybe you've heard about the gene editing technology CRISPR. This massive biotech breakthrough, which has emerged in the last decade, has mainly been touted for the ways it will let scientists edit the human genome, hopefully to cure genetic diseases or perhaps more worryingly to create designer babies. But CRISPR is also being used in another area, the world of food. Cultural anthropologist Dr. Lauren Crossland-Marr hosts a new five-part podcast, A CRISPR-Bite. She takes listeners into labs as researchers tinker with the genes in what we eat and drink. What exactly are they trying to achieve and what is at stake? Hi, Lauren.
1: Hi, so nice to be here.
0: This is just so fascinating that you've chosen this as a way to do an incredible deep dive. Um, I'm wondering if it's inspiring or horrifying.
1: Well, I hope by the end of the conversation, it's both. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, What
0: exactly is CRISPR? I've sometimes heard it called DNA scissors, and I'm sure a lot of us have heard about it, but don't exactly know what it is or what it does. Can you give us a very basic layperson's explanation?
1: Sure, of course. Well, you've probably heard of GMOs, and your listeners probably have as well. Um, CRISPR is another more advanced gene technology tool that allows scientists to precisely edit DNA in living organisms. Um, and as you mentioned, it acts like molecular scissors. It cuts the DNA at these targeted locations. Obviously, there are a lot of uses for this technology. And as you mentioned, uh, many of you may have heard of the potential for treating genetic genetic disorders like sickle cell disease or uh, the controversial CRISPR babies, but it's really important to know that most of us will actually encounter CRISPR through the food on our plates, not at the doctor's office. So how long have researchers been
0: experimenting with CRISPR in food? Pretty much right from the beginning?
1: Um, So that's a really interesting question um, because actually CRISPR was first discovered in yogurt uh, in the early 2000s, in yogurt bacteria. So its origins are really tied uh, to the food system. And of course, with this, many scientists have started using it uh, as applying to many different types of living organisms. And we've really seen a genetic revolution in like the past 10 years uh, using CRISPR to make changes to lots of different foods. It was in 2012 that... That Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier invented its use to genetically alter other living organisms. So it hasn't been that long, but we've seen a, quite an uptick in its use um, across the board, not just in the medical sciences, but again, in, in our food. Um, scientists are using CRISPR in many different ways to add nutrients to plants, like more protein to soy, um, also using it to decrease pests to protect things like the wine industry. And scientists are actually now learning a lot more about off-target changes and how to catch them um, when using this technology. So it's really a boon uh, in the past 10 years.
0: Okay, we have to go back to the yogurt thing. Did scientists discover that, that genes were being cut naturally and sort of were able to wrestle that and be able to control it? Or was yogurt the first product that they experimented with this technique?
1: So when they they actually discovered CRISPR in yogurt, um, basically CRISPR acted like an immune system for the bacteria in yogurt. Um, It changed code when it needed to fight off viruses. Um, So you can kind of think of this as like the naturally occurring CRISPR. And then it's in 2012 that we see the advent of its applications to all living organisms. Um, So that really big leap from the early 2000s to really 2012 is uh, the marker for when. And we start seeing it uh, used in, in pretty much everything.
0: Okay, so when I think about scissors or I think about cutting up DNA, because of that word cut, I'm also thinking paste. So are most of the applications deleting something or inserting something?
1: Yes. So um, it can be uh, both, right? So essentially it consists of this kind of guide RNA, which is probably thinking back to your biology class. Um, It's just a way that you can design uh, an experiment to match a specific DNA sequence using a protein, the Cas9 protein. And so those scissors go in and cut and they can add and delete at a targeted location.
0: Okay. Okay. So let's let's go into like a specific example. Um, the first episode of the podcast you host, a CRISPR Bite, um, gives us an overview of the tech. Then each episode focuses on a different food item, starting with tomatoes. Um, you talk about how a company in Japan used CRISPR to develop tomatoes with increased levels of GABA, which is an amino acid that's been shown to decrease stress. Can you talk about this particular example and why it's significant? And maybe also a bit about just how tomato genetics have been edited way before CRISPR?
1: Well, the tomato is so interesting, actually, in the history of genetic engineering. Because it was the first plant really modified and put on the market using both GMO technology and CRISPR technology. So for the GMO technology, uh, this was done in the 90s in the U.S. And you mentioned the GABA tomato, which was uh, put on the market in 2021 in Japan. So it turns out, actually, that tomatoes are relatively easy to modify, which is always a good thing, and that they all have a huge market. So it makes sense that companies would want to focus on that plant. What's interesting, though, in the use of this Technology, gene editing technology with tomatoes in the past and um, more recent applications with CRISPR is that the ways that they modified this plant were completely different. So in the 90s, Calgene, uh, the company that created the first GMO tomato, really created this tomato that would last longer. They called it a flavor saver tomato. Um, So you could pick the tomatoes when they were ripe and ship them to markets across the U.S. Um, This is very different than uh, the new tomato that we've seen from Sanitec Seeds, uh, which has added GABA, as you mentioned, to reduce stress. Um, And this is an example of adding nutrients to a plant of course, could have a huge impact for solving big issues like malnutrition across the globe. But at this point, it's sort of like, a, I would say, a proof of concept. Um, No one is going blind from not having enough GABA, uh, like you would with a deficiency in something like vitamin A. So I still think we're a long way from it having a substantial societal impact, but interesting nonetheless. So how did these
0: CRISPR-edited tomatoes affect the Japanese people who ate them, the ones that had higher levels of GABA?
1: Yeah, so my best friend's cousin, who lives in Tokyo, actually did a taste test for us. It was very exciting for somebody like me, but also a little disappointing in the end. Uh, She said that they tasted like a normal tomato. They were just a little more sour. And she said that they didn't really make her feel less stressed. Um, I haven't seen any research on their impact uh, on stress levels among consumers, so we're not sure. You know, I
0: think about CRISPR as like a subset of GMO. Is is that correct? Would
1: they count as a GMO? This is really a great question. And surprisingly, this is up for debate, uh, actually. Um, I should say that to me, it's pretty clear that both uh, CRISPR and GMOs are forms of gene editing. Um, You're really modifying the genes to make changes that likely wouldn't happen so quickly or even at all uh, through breeding. However, proponents say CRISPR is is a more natural process uh, since you're staying within the same genome, unlike with many of the GMOs, which are taking uh, genes from other organisms. Um, and so the USDA actually agrees and doesn't regulate CRISPR as closely as GMOs, uh, calling it, in some cases, uh, equivalent to conventional breeding. And and what about labeling? Have we gotten there yet? I know labeling
0: is still an issue with GMOs.
1: Yes, this is a big issue with CRISPR as well. Um, right now, uh, we don't have labels, uh, it's not uh, necessary., um, and those people who are concerned about CRISPR and its use in the f- in food uh, really, really want labeling, and that makes sense. And in fact, uh, in our first episode, we talk about how, uh, a, there's been a public opinion survey that shows that actually the more, majority of Americans would love to have labeling uh, as well. So it seems like a pretty a no-brainer. Uh, we see it also in the grocery stores with GMOs. Um, those are often labeled as GMO-free and things like that. Um, so it would be great if we could get some regulation to also get different CRISPRed plants also uh, regulated that way, but uh, at the moment uh, it's not a necessity.
0: Are there concerns that when scientists altered the genetics of the tomatoes to increase the GABA levels they maybe were potentially
1: altering other things that might somehow harm humans? Oh, this is a major concern for those cautious about using the technology uh, in the food system. And I think after learning as much as I have, I think harm to humans is a possibility more likely in plants than in animals. I think with animals, we see that they would be visibly sick in most cases, whereas plants can be harmful to humans without looking sick, (laughs) you know, just thinking about the many pristine mushrooms that can kill us. Um, But the main issue is that under the current regulation, as I mentioned, it's not required uh, to check um, changes across the whole genome. So basically, scientists can show that the changes they set out to make worked, without comparing it to the full genome of a normal vegetable to see if there were any off-target changes. So in addition to um, labeling, this is a huge and, and issue and very alarming to those who are concerned about CRISPR in our food system.
0: And finally, there's cattle. I mean, of course there's cattle.
1: Um, how are CRISPR research trying to modify cattle? Yeah, um, so I should note that the Hornless Cattle Project actually used Talon, which is a technology very similar to CRISPR. Um, And in the episode, we highlight this experiment to create hornless cattle. And you and many others may be asking, well, why modify cattle this way? And certainly when I started on this project, I thought the same thing. Um, You know, most cattle actually have to be manually dehorned, so they don't hurt other cattle or their handlers. Mm -hmm. This is not a fun process for the animals or the people involved. Um, And so there was a a push from UC Davis, uh, from this one researcher to do this experiment. And the cattle from these experiments actually became sort of mini celebrities. One was actually uh, on the cover of Wired Magazine. And they really showcased for the first time uh, publicly the potential of of these newer technologies like CRISPR and Talon. When we
0: start using CRISPR to edit the genes of animals like cows, what, what ethical issues come into play?
1: Yeah, I, um, this is such an important discussion point when we think about this new technology. Um, and in terms of ethics, I think there are a few guiding questions that actually map on to what we were hoping to do in the podcast kind of writ large. Um, I think the first is uh, really the question, is the technology as precise as promised? Um, We learned in the episode uh, that the animals that we met were dispatched shortly after finding an accidental change. And I think this brings into light uh, animal welfare issues, uh, creating animals in labs, et cetera. I think second, we need to ask, what are the business interests at play? You know, are hornless cattle going to address big issues that we have, like climate change? You know, I'm really suspicious that engineering cows to be hornless is a good use of the technology. As those changes really support unsustainable factory farm systems. And I think the third thing that we can really... Think about and something that we've talked about already is what might responsible regulation look like, especially for animals? And I think we can take a page from the book of medical sciences who on the whole have done a really excellent job of being cautious when applying CRISPR to humans. And I think we could take a similar, though perhaps not as extreme approach, um, because in a sense, like with humans, we are modifying generations of animals. So these traits get passed down. Um, So we have to think in these kind of long-term ways.
0: Well, thank you so much, Lauren. I mean, what a wonderful um, podcast you have and so much food for thought, as we say. Thank you for coming to Good Food.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. That was Dr. Lauren
0: Crossland-Mar, the host of A CRISPR Bite, discussing how the technology is being used to edit the DNA of food. For a link to the podcast, head to our website, kcrw.com slash goodfood. Coming up, if you, like me, are a condiment hoarder, then this next segment is for you. We've got interesting twists on mustard, hoisin, and pickles. That's next. Welcome back to Good Food. I don't know about you, but I have a condiment problem. It's so extreme that I've contemplated getting an additional refrigerator just to house all of them. But more is more, Right. Dara Goldstein is one of my favorite food writers and editors. Together with Courtney Burns and Richard Martin, she embarked on a project to create six small books on food preservation. The first up is Preserved Condiments, a simple title for a collection of flavor bombs.
2: Hi, Dara. Hi, Evan. I have to tell you, I had to buy an extra refrigerator to put in the basement (laughs) to hold all the condiments. So I succumbed. Oh, you're 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 my new inspiration then. <laughs> oh, okay. I'll take a picture and send it to you. <laughs> oh, perfect.
0: What is the root of this odd little word condiments? What does it
2: really mean? Well, originally it came from the Latin condire, which means to preserve or some dictionaries say it means to season. But it originally referred, that word referred to any substance that could keep food from spoiling. So if you think in those terms, the original condiment is salt. But over time, condiments came to refer to the preparations that have a long shelf life that have been preserved, either through salting or fermenting or pickling, things like that.
0: Can you explain how when we preserve a condiment, it also intensifies the flavor. It's kind of like a twofer.
2: Yeah, it really is. Um, I think that the most delicious condiments are fermented. So what happens with um, the microbial action is that the acidity and the alcohol content of the food increases as these microbes sort of suppress water activity and so it, it's almost like a kind of dehydration, even though you don't lose liquid. And that's what helps preserve the foods. But also with drying, for instance, which is another way to preserve, that concentrates the flavors. So if you're fermenting um, and you have lactic acid created then uh, you get these really deep tangy flavors and often with an acidic edge I mean think of cream and then sour cream Uh, one of my favorite recipes in the book is for ketchup with uh, fermented tomato paste and my husband won't eat anything else now (laughs) it's just so so good it's such a great idea. Is it difficult to ferment tomato paste? It's not none of the recipes are difficult, I would say, or most of them are in, in terms of technique, but it takes time and patience. The very
0: first recipe in the book is for shug, the Israeli chimichurri adjacent condiment, but your version uses some fermentation. What is it that's fermented and how does it change this stuff?
2: It's actually the chouk itself. So if you make it and it's usually fresh, you have lots of cilantro, you have parsley, garlic, jalapenos, and, and spices. And you mix them together and there you have this wonderful herb paste. But... What we do is we allow it to ferment at room temperature for a week to 10 days. And during that time, the flavor profile changes from this very fresh tasting condiment to something that's slightly sour and maybe a little bit funky, you can allow it to ferment as long or as little as you like. But what also happens is um, we use 10 large garlic cloves in our chouk. And if you think about having that much garlic raw, you wouldn't really be tasting all of the herbs so well. But as they ferment, they mellow, and they take on this really um, umami flavor.
0: Mm. Sounds wonderful. Now, um, I tend to veer often to condiments that can provide me some tang, and the red plum hoisin sauce looks quite wonderful.
2: Oh, Evan, I'm glad you mentioned that. I actually eat that one by the spoonful from the jar. <laughs> <laughs> I really love it. It's uh, made from a base of fermented black beans. And we have a recipe for a fermented black bean sauce, but you could also buy that if you didn't want to go to the trouble of making your own black bean sauce. And um, we add dried angelino plums. They're a little bit sweet, but they have a nice tang to them and they give this really beautiful fruity edge. There's a lot of ginger and some sorghum syrup. So it is ever so slightly sweet, which is why it's like condiment candy. It's really one of my favorite recipes in the book. How do you use it aside from just eating it spoonful by
0: spoonful from the jar?
2: (laughs) Well, you know, if you have um, roasted or grilled some meat, it's a really nice accompaniment just to use it as a sauce. But you can stir it into stir fries. You could use it as a marinade. You could glaze vegetables with it. There are lots of different things you can do. So we can't talk about condiments without
0: talking about mustards. And you have one called Gardel, a hot mustard made in an unusual way, yet quite simple to make.
2: Yeah, so I'm sort of obsessed. I think I already used that word, so I better... (laughs) (laughs) and not be obsessed with everything in the book. But um, we have two mustards in the book. One is a honey-fermented one that is really aromatic and more delicate. And then we have this one, which um, the secret to it is when you make mustard, all you really have to do is mix mustard seeds or, or powdered seeds with an acid, and you usually add vinegar or white wine. And what the Gardal does is uh, use lacto-fermented pickle juice. So from pickles, basically, but not vinegar ones, ones that have been uh, fermented. And it's a very intense, very dark mustard because we use the brown seeds. Oh, it sounds so good. And, and where is that from? What is its provenance? It is um, the way the Cossacks around the Don River make it. And they use it as the accompaniment to uh, a really intense, very garlicky pork sausage that they grill. So um, I think we need to talk about Indian pickles.
0: I really love them. And I just happen to have too many limes right now. I was thinking of juicing them and freezing the juice, but maybe I should pickle
2: them instead. Is it difficult to do? Again, it's not difficult, Evan. It just takes time. We have a recipe for a lime achar, and achar is an Indian condiment that's preserved in oil or brine. And what we do is preserve the limes first, the way you would make preserved lemons. So you basically slit them and layer them with salt and let the salt work on them for about six weeks at the minimum. <laughs> so you have to have some patience for that. But once they're ready, then you just steam them to soften them a bit chop them and cook them very quickly with spices and onions. And you have uh, a chutney-like condiment that uh, has this nice sour taste. It's really good. This is such a great little book, Dara. Uh, Thank you for it. Thank you, Evan. It's always good to talk to you. That was Dara
0: Goldstein. Together with Courtney Burns and Richard Martin, she's put together a great little book called Preserved Condiments. It's the first of a series of six short books on food preservation. And that red plum hoisin sauce that she's been eating by the spoonful? We've got the recipe at kcrw.com slash goodfood. Saying chai tea is like saying the La Brea Tar Pits. It's redundant, explains Kevin Wilson, dubbed the CEO of chai by Bon Appetit. Spending nearly the first two decades of his life in Sri Lanka, Kevin has a personal connection to the tea trade. His grandfather worked on a British tea estate, measuring the quality of the tea before it went into processing. Today, Kevin has his sights set on a specific goal, He encourages a contemplative life, one cup at a time without a recipe, reminding us that sometimes the best things in life
3: cannot be measured.
0: Hi, Kevin. Hi, Evan. Thank you so much for joining us here on Good Food.
3: Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, it's a pleasure to uh, connect with you guys.
0: The book is really amazing. I mean, you buy this book about chai, And then you start reading it and it is as if you have delved into a different universe like emotionally and spiritually. It's quite marvelous. You write, true empathy is recognizing that you can never be an expert in someone else's story. And then you go on to say that chai is empathy in liquid form. Can um, Can you talk about that a little bit?
3: Yeah, so... I believe that was the chapter on the leaf uh, where I kind of start talking about uh, my experience in in South Sudan. I talk about empathy in that chapter and I'd say that... define define empathy as you know stepping in not necessarily stepping into somebody else's shoes and trying to understand what it's like to be in their shoes because even if I want to do that with you or if you want to do that with me this as much as we would like like that sentiment of stepping into somebody else's shoes we f- won't fully understand that you know we we can't fully experience what the, other, the person is going through but I define empathy as actually orienting your entire body or orienting your story towards uh, the other person and for nothing other than just to be there for them in that moment, whether it's to listen to their story, listen to their perspective, without anything else, without any conditions for your compassion. In my cultures and in South Asian cultures, particularly, and also in parts of Africa and Afghanistan and parts of Asia, when you have chai with people, it's not just a purely consumptive experience. It's not just a caffeine boost to get you along for the rest of the day. When you have tea with somebody, you're basically saying that the person that you're having tea with is not just a guest but in, you know but they're a god almost like in in Hindu philosophy, for example, that is embedded in their in their theology where if you serve somebody some food or drink or you know chai in this case, they get transformed into something higher than just a just a human being or just or a cog in the machine. And so when I say chai is empathy in liquid form, chai is kind of this social lubricant that allows us to really be in the moment really understand what the other person is going through and not rush you can't you can't fully rush love you know can't rush compassion
0: i love that um and now to get a bit more technical a uh, less emotional maybe let's talk about the the drink you say you don't measure when you make chai which makes sense to me it seems like the perfect canvas for riffing what ingredients do you need to make just a basic cup Walk us through your process.
3: Okay. The word chai literally means tea. So loose leaf black tea and water would make you the most fundamental, like basic cup of tea. Anything other than that is extras. And there are cultures around the world who just do that. They just do the black tea and water. They strain it out and then you have chai. But when I talk about chai, and when a lot of people, especially from the South Asian, the, the Indian subcontinent, talk about chai, we are talking about spiced milk tea or masala chai. Masala means spice. The most basic cup of masala chai would have loose-leaf black tea, either uh, Assam CTC tea. the CTC stands for cut, tear, curl, uh, it's also a grade in, 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 uh, for, for a particular black tea that's commonly sold in, in India, Assam from the northeast part of India. Or I also prefer Salon BOPF for my chai, which is the tea from, from Sri Lanka, where I'm from. So you need a good quality loose-leaf black tea, water, and you need to have a choice of Full fat milk. If you're going dairy, typically people use in cow's milk, or if you want to go plant based, you can do full fat oat or full fat uh, almond. My personal preference is a full fat oat uh, because you want a milk source that is that is viscous, it is thick, but it also is flavor neutral. You don't want something like uh, soy milk, for example, because it tends to conflict uh, with the with the tea and then the spices and the flavor of the spices. Then you have the spice blend. And so this is where things get a little tricky because you know, you, depending on who you talk to in India, different people, or in Sri Lanka, different families would have different spice blends. But if you were to ask me, I think you would need, first and foremost, uh, green cardamom pods, uh, fresh cinnamon sticks, and then cloves. I would also certainly use fresh ginger. You, then your sweetener. Then you would need probably white sugar, some people use brown sugar. And that's that's basically the ingredients that you would need to make the cup of chai. But I don't know if you wanna talk about the method and all that stuff.
0: Yeah, let's talk about the method. So first, you um, are you crushing them in a mortar or do you just lightly crush them with your hands as you add them to the pot?
3: So first things first, let me let me go through the whole process here then. Take your water and you would heat it up, medium heat into your pot, a stainless steel pot. When you see small bubbles lining up the bottom of the pot, at that point, I would add a fresh crushed ginger. And how I crush that would be with a mortar and pestle. And at this point, I'll also add my crushed spices as well. And once the water starts to boil, not a vigorous boil, but just like a medium boil, then I would add my tea. So for maybe two cups of chai, I would add two teaspoons of loose leaf black tea to that. And once it's really boiling, I would let it boil for maybe, I would say, a minute. Not more than a minute. And then I would add in the milk. The milk just arrests the whole process because, you know, you have cold milk coming into contact with hot water. And then I would, uh, yeah, start stirring and I would aerate it with my spoon. So the aerating is a specific way of actually stirring. You're not just stirring it around and around the pot. You're taking the liquid... Uh, with a wide based uh, kind of a ladle and you're dropping the liquid back into the pot and you'd kind of, you 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 keep doing that and then you would pause for a little bit because if you keep doing that you won't see the next step which is at some point all the stuff in, in the pot the liquid is going to come to uh, what I call a rolling boil it's going to just come up to the surface of the pot you'd wait till the liquid comes up to the surface of the pot and then you turn it off um, and sometimes, if you want, to, if the color is not deep enough for you, and I usually say the color of a happy brown boy, but that's super, super subjective. But you want uh, not something deep brown, but not light brown, somewhere in the in between there. And yeah, then I would, I would maybe crank up the heat again, and then come let it come to another a, another rolling boil, which is called a double boil. So there's two different boils, and then I'll turn it off, and then I would add the sweetener at this point. I would add the sugar, maybe two to three teaspoons of sugar. Strain it all out, aerate it. That's basically transferring the liquid between two cups. And then I serve, and that's it, that's your, uh, those are your two cups of chai.
0: (laughs) And because you've been doing this for so long, how long does it take you to make?
3: For two cups, uh, maybe seven minutes, you know, max, yeah.
0: And is it possible to make a decaf version?
3: Yes, uh, you can. You can make it decaf. You can use decaf loose leaf black tea, or my my personal recommendation, if you want to go fully caffeine free, is to replace your loose leaf black tea with rooibos tea, uh, as R O O I B O S T, which is a, a bush tea. They call it a honey bush tea, commonly found in South Africa.
0: It's so delicious. I drink yes. a cup every day.
3: Nice. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, thank you so much. It's such a sweet, sweet book. And sometimes I really love books that aren't huge. You know, (laughs) a small book that you can just keep around and open up and and read bits at a time. Thank you so much, Kevin.
3: Thank you so much, uh, Evan, for having this conversation, you know, reading the book. Yeah, we're grateful. I'm thankful.
0: That was TikTok and Instagram sensation, Kevin Wilson. His handle is cross And we've been discussing his wonderful little book, The Way of Chai, Recipes for a Meaningful Life. If you want to brew your own cup, head to our website, kcrw.com slash goodfood for Kevin's signature chai recipe. In a minute, 30 million acres in the United States are devoted to growing corn for ethanol. And yet, the so-called biofuel is known to be wildly inefficient. So why are we devoting so much farmland to it? We offer an alternative. Next. You're listening to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. There may not be much Donald Trump and Joe Biden agree on, but surprisingly, corn unites most politicians. Shortly after George W. Bush declared the nation addicted to oil, subsidies were offered that saw a dramatic increase in the use of corn-based ethanol and has remained steady. More corn is grown across the nation for fuel than for consumption by either animals or humans. Tom Philpott considers alternatives that give back and quite possibly save farmland. Hi, Tom. Hey, Evan. So, how much corn is annually planted across the heartland? How much land does it cover, and how is that glut of corn itself used?
4: Yeah, it's pretty amazing. It's, a you know, around 90 million acres, and... For reference, California, the entire California, is about 100 million acres. So you're talking about a giant mass of land, most of it in the center of the country. We call it the Corn Belt. These are the states clustered around Iowa. And about 45% of it goes to feeding animals, usually in these giant sort of livestock farms, these giant CAFOs, we call them, um, where you, you know, pack animals buy the hundreds, whether it be cows, chickens, or pigs, about 30% of it goes to ethanol. So really about 40% gets turned into ethanol, but about some portion of that is this byproduct, sort of the spent corn after it's been turned into ethanol, The animals can eat. So when you adjust for that, you get down to about 30%. And then a big chunk of the rest is used in ingredients stuff like high fructose corn syrup and that's gotten very unpopular with consumers so there's a bunch of other names that you know they use for corn sweetener and then you get just various ingredients that end up in processed foods you know starches and things like that but the great bulk of it go to those two uses sort of fattening animals on these livestock farms and burning it in our cars in the form of ethanol
0: how and why did agriculture and energy collide with ethanol being added to gasoline? What, what kind of incentive was there for big oil to do this?
4: Yeah, so it really kind of starts in the 70s when we have our energy crisis and we have gas prices skyrocketing. There was there an OPEC embargo of oil uh, being sold to the U.S. That caused gas prices to spike. And so um, a lot of politicians, um, primarily among them President Carter at the time, looked for alternatives to burning oil in cars. And we've known for a long time that you can add a certain amount of alcohol to a gas tank and burn it. And that's really what ethanol is. It's just sort of pure grain alcohol. And you know, it turns out at the same time, we're starting to have this big glut of corn. And that's when you get the formation of the U.S. ethanol market. And initially, the government juiced it up by um, offering the oil industry that sort of creates gasoline from petroleum a tax break for every gallon of ethanol they mixed in. So the the oil companies were happy. The sort of corn producers were only too happy. And the the happiest of all were the corporations that buy the corn and turn it into ethanol. And there was one company in in particular called Archer Daniels Midland, that really sort of led the lobbying effort uh, on the corn side of this, um, of this equation in the 70s. And so that's how it starts. The levels were pretty moderate there for a couple of decades. So you go from 0% of ethanol and gas to 3 or 4%, and that persisted for decades um, until the period that, were, that you mentioned before uh, when George Bush declared us addicted to oil.
0: And so what percentage of ethanol is in a gallon of gasoline now?
4: now it 's ten percent, and it has been um, for at least seven or eight years, probably a little bit more than that but what 's incredible about that is we 're talking about a third of the corn crop we 're talking about thirty million acres of land, you know more or less, about you know thirty percent of the size of California going into our gas tanks, and it 's only offsetting 10% of the gas we use. And that's actually an exaggeration because ethanol is less, has less energy in it than gasoline. And so when you account for that, what is really offsetting is about, let's say 6.7% of gasoline. And we're burning 30 million acres worth of crops every year to do that rather modest sum.
0: So how is the term renewable a misnomer? when used to describe the renewable fuel standard as it relates to corn-based ethanol?
4: Right. So when they made this mandate, so what they do in 2006 is they they declare this mandate that gasoline mixers have to um, mix in a certain amount of ethanol. And to make it sound good, they called it the renewable fuel standard. And who could argue with that? And, you know, it makes common sense. Um, You can grow corn every year. This year's crop is one thing, but you know you, you can come right back next year and grow a second crop and a third crop after that. And so it's renewable into the future. Um, and so it makes sense in that way. But you know in a bigger sense, it's not renewable at all because as I've shown pointing to this research that's coming out of University of Massachusetts, this style of agriculture where we plant corn year after year in the same place is incredibly ruinous of soil. And we're losing soil at a really rapid rate in the Corn Belt. And um, the thing about soil is it is a non-renewable resource. It takes basically centuries to rebuild soil once it's been lost. Uh, And so what we're essentially doing, and there's a phrase for this, is soil mining.
0: Can you explain agrivoltaics and and how they might be a better solution to the energy crisis than corn-based ethanol?
4: Yes, this is so much of a funner topic to talk about. So it turns out that an acre of solar panels in the corn belt produces 100 times more net energy than an acre of corn that's gonna be turned into ethanol. And so you could generate the same amount of energy using a fraction of the land if you just stop growing corn for ethanol and put solar panels down. And agrivoltaics is this really cool thing where you don't have to choose between growing crops and putting in solar panels. You can actually do it together. And there's all kinds of innovative ways to do it. But, you know, anyone who's um, who's ever gardened before knows that some crops like full sun all the time, some crops would prefer a little bit of shade. You can use the solar panels to create those conditions. And the rule of thumb... Is that an acre where you have crops and solar panels produces about eighty percent of the total yield of crops and about eighty percent of the total yield of energy? But you're combining them together on one piece of land, and so it's way more productive. And as you guys in California know, we're you know we're making this this transition to electric vehicles, and this would be a great time to get away from liquid fuels for internal combustion engines and to start producing more energy to power the EV transition.
0: Give us an idea of how much land would be needed to replace the energy generated by the ethanol mandate.
4: If one acre of solar panels is 100 acres of corn, then you can divide it by 100 and say, if we're doing about 30 million acres for ethanol, we need about 3 million acres of solar panels to produce the same net energy. And, you know, why not double it and produce twice as much energy? And let's, so let's say, let's say 6 million acres, um, which, isn't, which is not insubstantial. In you know, if you're worried about food security, if you're worried about taking land out of production for agriculture and putting it into solar panels, then do it with agrivoltaics. It's a much smaller footprint, and with the land that's left over, you can put it to all sorts of good uses um, that isn't just growing corn and soybeans every year on the same plots of land.
0: Thank you so much, Tom.
4: Well, thank you so much. And I hope you guys stay dry out there in California.
0: That's author Tom Philpot. He is a senior research associate at the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future. His most recent book is Perilous Bounty, The Looming Collapse of American Farming and How We Can Prevent It. I'm happy to welcome back LA Times restaurant critic Bill Addison, who returns with an ambitious restaurant in the Arts District. Should you make a reservation? Bill says, yes. (laughs) Hi, Bill. Hi, Evan. You say that this food is the most quietly ambitious cooking to emerge in Los Angeles. Where are you taking us?
5: So we are talking about a restaurant, just to be clear (laughs) to everyone, named Yes, with two S's, Y-E-S-S. And the space is overwhelming, but in a good way. It's housed in a building that debuted in 1924 and decades ago housed a Bank of America branch. So you can picture the grand scope of the place. And some of the common design touchstones... For such buildings that are renovated like this are there, the exposed rafters, the piping, concrete everywhere, craggy red brick, but they're offset by gorgeously grainy wood tables and a 42-seat cypress bar that stretches nearly the length of the room. It's quite a place.
0: Wow. And who are the cast of characters behind Yes?
5: So owner... Kinu Ketsu is a designer and responsible for the beauty of this space. She brought in chef Junya Yamasaki, who earned quite a following in London last decade. And there's also Giles Clark, um, who followed Yamasaki from London to Los Angeles. So
0: this group of of cooking folks had... Um, A truck. Yes. Yes, aquatic. (laughs) Yes, Um, aquatic. Is yes, writ large, also a kind of Japanese seafood restaurant?
5: Yes and no. Yamasaki likes to encapsulate his cooking as, quote, progressive Japanese, unquote. But I understand that's maddeningly vague. And also concede that his style is, is hard to summarize. So there's lots of seafood and seasonal produce. There's sashimi and he grills locally caught fish over vinchotan and steams fish and fig leaves. There are a smattering of meatier dishes here and there, but fish and seafood is the focus. Yamasaki is a devoted diver and fisher, actually. And in the several years leading up to the various iterations of Yes, he made frequent outings on the water to acquaint himself with Southern California's sustainable marine life, which I think is cool.
0: And I understand that he spent some time studying Shojin Ryori, the Buddhist or temple cuisine, and that that has influenced a lot of um, what he does.
5: Yes, he made his name at a restaurant in London called Koya. It was primarily an udon bar, but he started slipping in these small plates, showing off his skill with produce and kind of the, the nuances that he could deliver around that. And he actually left the restaurant in 2015, specifically to go back to Japan to study Buddhist temple cuisine before coming to LA. And I do feel that. I feel the the vegetable focus in his cooking. and And in that way, of course, Los Angeles was a perfect place for him to land.
0: So tell us about the
5: absolutely stunning signature dish, which changes daily. This is right in line with what we're discussing. He calls it the monk's Chirashi sushi it's a bed of rice um, but instead of the usual assortment of fish he overlays the grains with fruits and vegetables and nuts and herbs and it's far more exciting than it may sound and could you describe a large format dish that you had Yeah, there there are several. It's always changing the menu. It's really interesting. So he, um, I'm thinking of uh, a whole fish that he might serve papillote style baked in parchment paper and with some very kind of aggressively citrusy ponzu. There is an incredible dish that I had there where he smoked tuna, sustainably caught tuna from local waters over hay. He smoked it over hay, like in the moment and then layered it with grated daikon and shiso. And it was this like these mulchy juicy textures with the kind of smoky meaty fish. It was incredible.
0: Wow, it sounds delicious. Thanks, Bill. Yeah, thank you. That was LA Times restaurant critic Bill Addison sharing his thoughts on Yes! Restaurant in the Arts District. Head to our website for a link to Bill's review. That's at kcrw.com slash Sure, you've tried cilantro, but have you eaten cilantro roots? Stick around to find out how to use them next. I'm Evan Kleiman, and this is Good Food. Let's head to the Santa Monica Farmer's Market to find out what's in season this week in Southern California.
6: This is Jillian Ferguson with the Market Report. I'm really excited to meet Chef Dio Arpapornapar at the market this morning. Dio, along with his partner Joy, are the duo behind Holy Basil, which started as a Thai takeout window in downtown LA and has just launched a new brick and mortar. Hi.
7: Hi, how are you doing?
6: I'm great. It's good to see you here. So what are you shopping for today?
7: I'm shopping for cilantro roots, one of the ingredients um, that we use often in many dishes in Thai cuisine.
6: Oh, that's so interesting. So I think many people are used to, of course, using the leaves and sometimes the stems of cilantro. What is the cilantro root?
7: Um, It's basically a a beachiest part of um, cilantro, and it's really hard to find in regular store except... Uh, from a farmer market and I have to talk to some of the farmer to actually leave it you know whole for us to be able to get it it's not many um, farmers that keep the whole roots
6: describe what the flavor is and what the texture is what, what do you do with it
7: it's um, um it's a really herbaceous like robust like cilantro root so usually we use it in many sauces or a curry paste Um, it's it's, in Thai there's also like three things that um, we use to mix together so cilantro, root, garlic and pepper Um, pound together you can make a marinade or you can take away a lot of gamey like meaty flavor you can also use it in sauces that you dip with like seafood you can use it for the base of curry paste it usually has it too.
6: So describe the paste or the marinades at Holy Basil that you use this in.
7: Yes so we use um, in our holy sauce which is more like a seafood dipping sauce um, they have green Thai chili, a little bit mix of um, red Thai chili garlic, cilantro sometimes we put um, roasted tomato, but um, and then palm sugar, fish sauce and lime we serve that with seafood. Um, we also serve that with our crispy pork belly. So it's really cut the fat for for like any like you know fatty meat.
6: It sounds incredible. So if you were to use the cilantro stems and leaves instead of the root, would it give it a completely different flavor?
7: It will definitely give a different texture because um you use much more than just a little part of the root. Yeah.
6: Oh, so the root is more concentrated. Yes, exactly. Ah, interesting. Okay. And you're using a mortar and pestle or do you use the like a blender?
7: Mortar and pestle.
6: That must be a lot of work.
7: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot. Yes. Yes.
6: So is this the traditional way of using cilantro in Thailand or is this more of a contemporary method?
7: Um, I would say it's a traditional way. Um, you can use it in so many ways. Um, but most people use in curry paste, sauces, and marinade. Or you can also use it in a stock. And it depends on the size of the root. Some, like I enjoy just eating it like whole after cooking, but I remember a farmer told me that um, usually during summer it's thinner, so you can chew, but like during uh, winter it's, it's stockier. So that one you definitely have to pound.
6: Okay, well this is so interesting to learn about. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Chef Dio Arpapunapart together with his partner Joy. He is one half of holy basil. I'm standing behind Fresno Evergreens stand here at the Wednesday Santa Monica Market with Chow Her, who brings the cilantro root. And Chow, tell us how you first started actually harvesting the cilantro root. Was it the chefs that asked you for it?
8: I think they last longer with the roots, so that's why we always pull, pull the cilantro with the roots.
6: Ah, so even if, you're, if someone's just coming to buy cilantro, you would still pull it from the roots?
8: Yeah, we carry it most of the time with the roots, yes. Yeah.
6: And when people get home with it, how should they store it?
8: Uh, it's best to put in a bag in the fridge. They last longer that way.
6: Okay, so we don't have to put the roots in water. Uh, no. Do you grow any other herbs like this where you bring them with the roots on?
8: Uh, just the cilantro. Sometimes we do uh, pull the dills with the roots. Oh, yeah. Wow. Uh-huh. And what
6: about the basil when it comes in a little bit later in the season?
8: No roots, we cut them because re- we let them regrow.
6: And all of your herbs here look so vibrant. What is the secret? Are you, are you picking them just right before the market?
8: Uh, yes, we pick uh, one or two days before the market, and we do have a cooler. So right after we pick them, we just toss them in the cooler. That's why uh, they look so fresh, you know, when they're at the market, yeah. Yeah,
6: yeah they do, they look so alive. Everything, your herbs, your, your green onions right now are incredible. What else is coming up this early springtime of year?
8: Right now, we're in between season. Uh, middle of April, we'll pick up more. That's when we have our basil, Persian cucumber, And then pretty soon summer, that's when we pick up a lot.
6: Yeah, it is amazing that summer is just around the corner here at the Farmer's Market. All right, well, thank you so much, Chow. Uh Thank you. That was Chow Her of Fresno Evergreen. He's here at the Santa Monica Farmer's Market every Wednesday and Saturday. For The Market Report, I'm Jillian Ferguson.
0: If you missed any of today's show, listen at kcrw.com slash goodfood or on KCRW's mobile app. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. My thanks to the Good Food team, Jillian Ferguson, Laryl Garcia, and Elena Shatkin, and to our engineers, Hope Rush, Nick Lamponi, and Phil Richards. And a special thanks to Laura Kondarajan and Gary Masiha. I'm Evan Kleiman. I don't know about you, but I'm going to definitely try making that Cuisine sauce this weekend. You can find the recipe at kcrw.com slash goodfood. And while you're there, remember to click on newsletter to sign up. I'll meet you back here next week for another episode of Good Food.